When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good God, I love that music. I can listen to it all day. <laughs> uh, well, 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 almost all day. I, I can see it get a little petted, but it definitely brings back that that '80s feel. Like I could see that with 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 the with the highlights of Larry Bird shooting the left hander off the glass against Detroit in Game Seven of the Eastern Conference Finals. But but here we are, Saturday, April fifth. Who am I? Oh. it's... Larry H. Russell, I'm here. Dr. Andre Snellings, RotoWire senior basketball writer, author of the Hoops Lab. Dr. Snellings, glad yes, to sir. be with you. I am happy to be here. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, memorable Larry Bird layup, you know, that that was one of the shaping experiences of my childhood. You know, Bird steals the ball. It, you know, I, I mean, at the time, you know, full disclosure, I actually was kind of pulling for Detroit, so I couldn't believe Isaiah threw it right to him. But um, in, in hindsight, I like to relive that time as, as I, you know, uh, immerse myself in the Celtics culture. Yeah, I was actually even talking about his little left-hand shot. If you watch the seventh game of that series, Bird just completely takes over the last se- se- six, seven minutes of the game. It's amazing. There's one play he's driving was weak side, and he takes the ball with his left hand. He just throws it right up and off the glass, Andre. It was just absolutely incredible. Yeah, Larry Bird, you know, as, as I mentioned a, a minute ago, you know, I hope everybody didn't tune out when I said it, but, you know, I didn't grow up. I'm not from Boston, so I didn't grow up a Boston fan. And Larry Bird was my most feared player in the NBA. You know, like as a Dr. J fan, um, you know, I, Larry Bird, I mean, he was so good, it was scary. And, and you know, like uh, these days, you know, you, you don't really necessarily feel that superhuman magic all the time, the, the, the way it seemed like it was back when, uh, when Bird was roaming the landscape. So, uh, so yeah, that, that man will always have my respect. Best Celtic ever. I used to think that. But then once I started doing my actual research, I would say it was Bill Russell. For the longest time, though, growing up in the 90s, and obviously there was Jordan and everything, I used to argue feverently, no, no, Bird was still better than Jordan. He's a better passer. But then it took me, it was like, all right, fine, Jordan's better than Bird. And then <laughs> as I sort of started doing my research a little more and looking a little deeper into it and not just being a an obnoxious, overzealous fan of Larry Bird. It's like, oh, yeah, now actually Larry Bird's probably more like a f- top five at 
best player ever. <laughs> He's not the best ever. I love the guy. I love his game. But, hey, we can accept him as what he is. Only probably the best all-around forward, unfortunately, up until LeBron James arrived. Sorry, I'm going to have to admit it. <laughs> LeBron is he's going to go down a little bit better than Larry. But, you know, Andre, I actually just... <laughs> It's funny that we're talking about a great Celtic like Larry Bird. I uh, just wrote a, a gigantic 7,500 words on the worst Celtics in history over the weekend. Three yeah. parts. You can check it out on CLNSRadio.com. I got the first two pieces up. And then tomorrow we're going to find out who the devil is, although I don't think that's going to be too hard to guess if you've gone through everything so far. Yeah, I, I had to laugh when um, I first started, you know, reading your worst Celtics of all time list and, and the length and the breadth and the depth of it was like, you know, I think Larry was feeling a little masochistic this weekend. He wanted to relive the bad old days. So, um, so yeah, it, it's worth a read. You'll see some names that maybe you haven't thought about in years and maybe you didn't want to think about. Well, actually, there's even some recent guys that threw on there that got a pretty pretty big heated debate on an email was someone regarding Jeff Green. I got chill out. I just mentioned him as an honorable mention. But at the same time, Jeff, colossal underachiever, isn't there at all times. I can't stand watching him play. I have a hard time accepting him in a Celtic uniform. He's just not a Celtic. And as I mentioned, too, in this in this column, everyone keeps I, I get other separate emails and even some Facebook posts of Oh, where's Connor Henry and Mark Akers? And as I mentioned as a disclaimer in the column, it's it's not about being a scrub. Obviously, you know, you, you have Joe Klein up there or Stoiko Vrankovic or <laughs> some of these other guys. It's really about some of the negative impact you have on the team. And and Jeff Green, I guess he's an honorable mention, people. He's an honorable mention. I didn't have him. He's, he's not depths of hell. He has a negative impact on the Celtics team along with the, it seemed like, 40 other guys that I – up there as well yeah Jeff Green is, is interesting and, and when I saw his name in your article um, I had to kind of smile because I knew where you were coming from with that you know he's kind of been a victim of expectations and wrong place at the wrong time you know the fact that he was traded for you know the beloved perk uh, right when he was and that the team fell off right afterwards you know just started him off on a bad note and then he had the missed year because of his heart issues. And then, you know, he comes back and you see just the amazing ability that he has. You know, on any given night, he can go off like he did in the playoffs last year and, and drop 40, 45 points. But then you see all the things that he doesn't do. And, and yeah, it, I, I, I don't think that you're alone in having a negative connotation of, of, of Jeff Green as a Celtics fan. Um, I kind of, you know, I feel a little sad about that because, you know, it, he seems like from interviews and everything, he seems like a nice guy, you know, and I see the talent and I really want him to be better than, than he's been. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think his tenure here is going to leave a, a great taste in, in a lot of his fans, of, of Celtics fans' mouths. It isn't really a case of him being a nice guy. And I got to get something out of the way, too. I'm really getting sick and tired of hearing about what a great kid Jeff Green is. And not only that, I'm also sick and tired of hearing how courageous he was coming back from that, from the heart ailment. He had 40 million reasons to come back from the heart ailment, all right? That's why he was courageous. In terms of his game, 
Listen, Jeff Green, I'm sick and tired of the excuses. Every single year is an excuse. This guy's been in the league seven, eight years. Oh, he'd be a good third option on a good team. Really? When he was in Oklahoma City, the team immediately got better as soon as they traded him. When he was a third option in Oklahoma City, he had a 13 PER, and the team was terrible. And the best the team ever did was as an eight seed with him. They traded him for Perkins. Remember, Perkins didn't play for Oklahoma City right away. He sat in the bench. He, he was injured with a knee injury once they traded for him. And Oklahoma City finished that regular season with the best regular season record in basketball from the point as soon as they got rid of Jeff Green for nothing. And when they and he went to Boston, they asked for nothing from him. They asked literally for nothing. You're going to be playing against other teams' second-unit players. You're going to be a fifth, sixth scoring option of this team. And he couldn't even do that. He was completely lost. And I don't want to hear this nonsense about how, oh, he, he didn't have enough time to adjust. He's a professional basketball player. Listen, I, you can't pick everything up right away. But we were just talking about the Detroit Pistons in the late 80s. Do you remember when they traded for Mark Aguirre late late in the season? They traded a key piece, Adrian Dantley, for him. And Aguirre plugged right in. He wasn't Aguirre right away, but he could still be functional. Green wasn't even functional. He wasn't even productive. And then same thing. I'm I not think, sure functional is the word. <laughs> he was right. He, I, I'm talking about him like he's a toy. And that's what, and that's what he is. And and, I've, and, and the way this season's been going, it's, it's, it's been all Jeff Green talk, and, and he's an easy guy to sort of point fingers at, sort of like the way we all used to point fingers back at Todd Day, who I mentioned pretty highly in my column back in the 90s. I used to always make that call, comparison with Green as soon as I saw him play for the Celtics. This guy, he isn't Todd Day. Nobody's as bad as Todd Day. He just shot and gunned and fired away like there was just no tomorrow, but... He's sort of like a mix of Antoine where he doesn't really have any redeeming quality of his game where (laughs) if there's a night where he doesn't have something, like if he doesn't have his shot, isn't falling, which is the case for every NBA player. You don't just go out there and shoot 80% from beyond the three-point line all the time. If he doesn't have a night where his shot's not falling, what else is Green going to give you? He can't rebound effectively. For ball handling, it's good for a four, but it's like he's Magic Johnson. Say passing, decent. There's nothing that he can really do. And then when you consider that he's aloof, he's lazy, which rubs off poorly on other players. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I just, I, I need, it's like with Todd Day, I wrote in the column. Get Todd Day out of my life back in the 90s. Same thing. Jeff Green, just please, just finish out the year and just, Danny, please just get Jeff Green out of my life. I, I, I'm really struggling I still enjoy watching the Celtics, not as much as I did back when I was a kid, and it was life and death for me. But I, I, I can't watch Jeff Green and his what seems like lack of commitment. I don't think it is lack of commitment, but he's not into it like we think of that Celtic diving on the floor, Dave Cowens racing across the floor, getting floor burn, Sherman Douglas even back in the 90s. If you want to mention a player on a on a not-championship team, I used to love watching Sherman Douglas give himself up. I can't stand watching Jeff Green just sort of just coast around and and really live up, not live up to his at least his athletic gifts that he was given to. So let's just just, just get Jeff Green out of my life at the end of the year, please. <laughs> well, I guess on that note, um, you know, let me pivot to another name in your article of uh, someone that I remember watching that was, you know, had that kind of 
he didn't start off with it, but he kind of developed that lackadaisical feel. And and um, uh, I know a lot of Celtics fans uh, didn't enjoy his last uh, few years in Boston or or what he became when he left. And that's Mark Blount. I remember watching Mark Blount play for the Timberwolves against the Celtics in like his first game against the Celtics, and he just caught fire. He hit like seven shots in a row. And after every shot, he would, like, skip back down the court. Yes, like, <laughs> I remember that game. That was the game. Ricky Davis had a game winner. Am I correct? Yep, I think you are From correct. the baseline and then blunt mob, mob Davis. If you, <laughs> if you remember sort of that, the Magic Johnson's first game in the NBA when Kareem hit that the sky hook. Now, I don't remember it because I, I wasn't alive, but mm-hmm. it's a famous clip in NBA history. Just go to YouTube. Yeah, Magic jumps sky, all over it's him. a sky hook, and Magic jumps all over him. And Brent Mersburgers, he Magic celebrating like they won the NBA champion, NCAA championship. That was a Mike Blunt's as he's skipping, and Davis hit that game winner against mm-hmm. the Celtics, and Blunt's mobbing, mobbing him like they won the championship, and you're just like rolling your eyes and you're laughing like this clown. Thank God he's a, out of Boston. Yeah, yeah he I, was another one. I remember um, a Celtics fan on a message board that I was on had that gif of, of Mark, you know, Blunt skipping down the court. But, you know, they had photoshopped it, so he had a yellow dress on while he was skipping. And, you know, so he looked kind of like Little Red Riding Hood skipping down, you know, the street. And, and um, yeah, he, he did not get positive reviews uh, for, for his uh, end and post-Celtic career. When he was on the Celtics in the second half of that 2004 season, he was playing unbelievably well. And I personally remember thinking to myself, going like, uh, I'm having a little questions about this. Is this a contract run? Because he just seems to be all over the place. And we were just talking about Jeff Green being aloof. Blunt, or Blount, as he was known back then, before he changed his name a little bit, he was, like, out there. I mean, he was just spaced out. Outside of maybe the occasional weak side shot blocking, I mean, he was just a guy that was just sort of just around. He was seven feet I remember there was a playoff game the Celtics had against Philadelphia. It was a deciding game. It was actually that 2002 team when they made that run. I think Blunt came in for like some for some minutes in the second quarter. It was just like, oh my god, this this game is going to get out of hand. What is he doing in the game? I remember they actually survived that, but that's how bad he was at one time. And then just out of nowhere, this guy is diving all over the court. He's jumping the stands. He's getting every single rebound in sight. He's playing. Just incredible defense, but I remember having these questions like, this is a contract run. This is very shady, and then after like five games into that next season, you were like, yep, that was a contract Mm -hmm. run. He took his money. He ran, so yeah, obviously, I remember I I mentioned names like Rafe LaFrance, how he was overpaid. That's not his fault. He signed a contract on the team. He got traded to Boston, and he played hard when he was on the court. He just had his injury problems, but he was just a stale fart in the room. Blunt was he was he was a guy who just snagged his money and and ran. Yeah, you know it, it. It always you know from the outside. Now, obviously, if someone offered to pay me forty million dollars, I would take it without question. But I like to feel like I would you know keep working hard and, and trying to earn the money. Um, but it's always interesting when you see you know players sign the big contracts and then just kind of fade away. You know, I have to, I have to wonder if in the end, if, if they feel like it's worth it. I mean, they become such hated figures, you know, on, on teams where 
you know, they, they, they had a chance to have some fans. They had a chance to be part of something. So, you know, I'm sure they're not regretting their, their, their millions wherever they are. But, um, you know, you, you would like to think they would like to have had a more positive experience. Positive, right, Andre? Positive. We're negative here. I'm writing these columns, 7,500 words on the worst Celtics ever. It's been a tough season, but I got to mention something here. Now, this has to be mentioned. You know, the last three shows of Celtics Beat have been the highest rated shows in CLNS history. The last three, these last three weeks. I'm not going to slam myself on the back. I'm actually going to say, what does that say about Celtics fans where as tough as this season has been, and especially as we are late in this season where the Celtics are just losing what seems like game after game after game after game, that they're still coming back and they're trying to get Celtics fixed. And honestly, to those listening, I'm honored that you're using Celtics beat as your outlet for that. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, Celtics fans are one of the best fan bases I've ever seen. And, and I can speak on that objectively because, as you know, I pointed out earlier in the show, I'm not a born and raised Bostonian. You know, I've, I've been fans and am fans of other teams, and I've seen different fan bases. And, you know, the Celtics represent for the Celtics all of the time, through good and bad. As you point out in your article, you know, it's, it's been a long time since Larry Bird was walking through those doors. You know, we're talking coming up, what, 30 years now? So in that time period, we had this brief golden age where the, the, the Garnett, Pierce, Allen years, um, you know, being in contention. But outside of that, 25 years of, of not being quite what we would like them to be. And those Celtics fans are still die hard represent everywhere you know bleed green we're in april and then you're getting the three highest rated shows in in, in your history i mean I, I think that's outstanding hats off to the fans yeah it's just it's been absolutely incredible to me i'm having i'm having an absolute blast doing this show andre i'd obviously like to thank you i'd like to thank rich conti obviously ty ray i need to give a shout out to nick gelso couldn't do it without him and couldn't do without some of the great guests we've had on the show. Andre, we've got another one. It's this far into the show. We haven't mentioned his name. Ian Eagle of CBS Sports coming on up. Oh, yeah. I'm excited about that one. I'm looking forward to picking his brain on a, on college basketball, you know, a subject that, you know, maybe I'm not the biggest expert on. Um, I, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Neither am I. I am not the biggest expert of college basketball either. And that's why we're going to have him, and I believe he's on the line right now, so let's go right to him. Joining us right now actually might be my favorite play-by-play announcer going, outside of maybe Vern Lundquist, but he works at the same network of them, CBS Sports. It's Ian Eagle of CBS Sports as well as the Yes Yes Network, voice of the Brooklyn Nets. Ian, pleasure having you on Celtics Beat. You got it, Larry. Great to uh, finally catch up with you. No, I know me and you have been... uh, going back and forth with each other, obviously. And you're uh, more than a busy man. We know that voice of the Nets. You work for CBS. I mean, what what else do you do as well? I know you do so many more endeavors as well. Uh, women's field hockey. Larry, that's, that's a passion, a very deep passion. No, no, I don't do that. But I do a lot of stuff, uh, tennis and some golf, uh, obviously NFL and college basketball, NBA. So this is really a fun time of year when when the college basketball Final Four is rounding into form and, and the NBA playoffs are just around the corner. 
Yeah, you've been calling the games for CBS. You're talking to someone who doesn't watch much college basketball, as much NBA basketball as I watch. Not much college, so you've been around it. Tell me what you've seen so far. Well, you know, it's interesting. You're an NBA guy, and I think there are those out there that will say that, oh, I I love the college game. Uh, It's so much of a pure game, and and that's that's a load of baloney. Uh, Let's face it. Uh, anyone that, that follows the NBA, that truly appreciates the NBA, recognizes that the level of play in the NBA is exceptional. And there's a chance on any given night that you're going to see something out there on the court based on athleticism, uh, based on the, the competitive nature of the league that you've never seen before. With that said, the ambiance of college basketball games, uh, the environment, the effort level that these kids are putting forth is so high and the stakes are high, uh, because for the majority of the players, this is it. This is the highest level they're ever going to play at. These are the moments that they're going to embed into their brain for the rest of time and the memories that they're going to be able to carry with them uh, later on when they have children, when they have grandchildren. So I've done the NCAA tournament for 17 years, and I really believe every time that I do one of these games that – uh, there's a responsibility that comes along with it. Uh, so it's been a great tournament. It's been uh, everything that any college basketball fan would hope for. You've seen the upsets. But ultimately, you've seen four excellent teams emerge here and pretty good matchups for the Final Four later on tonight. Uh, I'm not sure you could have scripted it any better considering the four teams that have been left standing. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to be tuning in, obviously. I know Danny Ainge is going to be tuning in, as well as many Celtics fans. Before we get to the draft prospects, it seems that Florida seems to be the overwhelming favorite. Uh, is there any chance, really, that they're not going to come out of here with this? Yeah, there is a chance, uh, because as good as they are, as balanced as they are, they're the most balanced team of the Final Four. They were the most balanced team coming into this tournament, the number one team in the country. They don't necessarily blow your doors off. They do it in an efficient way. Uh, they can strike quickly. Scotty Wilbekin's a player that has matured immensely over the last year and change, and to the point last year where uh, they had gotten sick of his shenanigans, his immaturity. Billy Donovan basically read him the riot act and said, look, if it doesn't change, we're going to ask you to transfer. We're going to ask you to leave the program. Well, he got the message loud and clear. He's become a leader for this team. He sat back, and and while he was a reserve player for two years behind Irving Walker and Kenny Boyden, he did sit back and, and take a lot of it in. Those guys were good leaders. They were leaders by example. They were hard workers. And Wilbekin has really become a go-to guy for Florida. Patrick Young is a four-year player for this program. He understands his role. He doesn't go outside of his role. Casey Prather is an improved player from last year to this year. His scoring average has jumped nearly 10 points per game. Uh, That's a guy that finally understood what Billy Donovan wanted from him, not to sit back on the perimeter and shoot threes. He was doing that at a 29% clip his junior year. In his senior year, Donovan's message finally got through to Prather. Go to the rim. Attack the basket. Use your length. Uh, 
take advantage of mismatches. So it's all come together well for this Florida team. They're 36-2. and two. As you mentioned, they are the favorite in this Final Four. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far to say overwhelming because UConn is a team that's riding on a lot of emotion right now. They've got a lead guard in Shabazz Napier who's exciting. He's dynamic. He can put that Husky team on his back and has done it already. Uh, he's a guy that can can really carry the team. Uh, very Kemba Walker-like from a couple of years ago when UConn won the title behind Walker and his scintillating play. So this is a team that, that has belief now, UConn, and they're, they're doing it based on the instructions of a longtime NBA guy, Kevin Ollie, who played 13 years in the league, bounced around the league, but learned a lot. And as a two-year assistant under Jim Calhoun, I think he really started to devise what his approach would be, what his, his whole mentality and philosophy would be as a head coach. And despite the fact that UConn was not eligible for the tournament last year, I think Kevin Ollie behind the scenes was planting seeds, was telling them how much of a factor they were going to be a year later, and all of that is coming to fruition right now. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Kevin Ollie's name. I know that he's been actually mentioned as a possible uh, consideration for coach. I know he had Sean Devaney of Sporting News on just a few weeks ago, and I believe he even mentioned him as a possible candidate for the Lakers job, of all things. I mean, here was a guy who was just in the NBA, it feels like, just a few years ago. Yeah, very very well respected, Larry, when he was a player. He was not the most talented guy. There's a reason why GMs and coaches liked having him around. You know, it's funny, uh, obviously the headlines, and as, as I know your background with the NBA, the headlines are usually the top five, seven, eight players, ten players on a roster. But one of the real hidden gems is a guy that can hang around as the 13th, 14th guy on a team year in, year out. There's something to that. There's a reason why that's happening. Kevin Ollie was never a star in the NBA. He was a guy that had to scratch and claw uh, to make a roster every year. But I think it, it shows how well thought of he was around this league, that he could do that, that he could survive as long as he did and then make the, the smooth transition uh, to going back to his alma mater and being trusted with a team and a, and a program that was run at an exceptionally high level by Jim Calhoun, a basketball Hall of Famer, multiple championships. So for him to, to make that smooth segue into being a head coach, uh, it's not lost on me. It's, it's a terrific story. So let's shift more now to these players, these future draft picks here. There's been a lot of talk regarding that if they're overrated or not. I know going into the season, this was a very hyped freshman class. But it seemed to fizzle out throughout the season because people were saying, well, these guys aren't going to be franchise changers. These guys aren't going to be like what Patrick Ewing was when he came out of college or right. Duncan. Where do you stand on where these players? I know Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated, he was on our show last week. He said, no, I think it's about five guys could be all-stars in this league. You've been watching these games or with CBS calling a lot of games every weekend. Where do you stand on the Andrew Wigginses and the Joel Embiid's and Jabari Parkers and whatnot? Yeah, I buy into that. I buy into Chris's assessment. Uh, I think you've got impact players in this draft. The, the issue really becomes how quickly you need them to be impact players. Uh, I I do believe that what we've seen, uh, based on the fact that the one-and-dones have become so popular, that 
often it's it's asking too much of these players too soon. And the guys, some of the guys that you mentioned, Tim Duncan or David Robinson or Shaquille O'Neal, these guys were in college uh, multiple years, sometimes all four years, and they came into the league ready to contribute right away. And some found themselves in better situation than, than others. We understand that if you go to a really bad team, there's a reason why that team was so bad. And one guy is not going to change all that. So uh, I think you've got to weigh the circumstances. And then uh, coaching becomes a big key to me. Uh, NBA coaches, look, there's not a lot of practice time in this league. We understand that. There's not a whole lot of time to develop talent. But certain guys have a knack. Certain guys have an understanding of how to work a player in, how to avoid uh, the trappings of rookie seasons, running into the rookie wall, massaging minutes, uh, having leaders in that locker room that that a young player can lean on. Uh, Can Andrew Wiggins be a legitimate NBA talent? Absolutely. Jabari Parker, Joel Embiid. Uh, These guys have the have the skills to do it, but to automatically tell you that they're going to be superstars, I can't. I can't say it until I know what team they're going to, what the coaching staff looks like, and what kind of support they have on that team in order to foster their career along. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the argument that I've been trying to make, as, as well as so many others on this show, is a lot of these, I mean, we have a tendency to sort of blame GMs and point at this guy and, oh, what a bust he was and, oh, what a bust that was. Most of the time, when you see these players succeed, obviously they have to have their great individual talents, but they got to—they have to be around a pretty good culture. I mean, you see how the Spurs develop guys. They don't develop the best players, but they... I would say not every single young player that runs through their system becomes exceptional, but you give them that kind of surrounding they do well. When you bring these guys in a, into 15 to 20 win teams every single yep. year, and they just are losing and losing and losing... It's like us in a bad working environment, and you lose your own personal motivation, your own personal motivation to get better. So it's, I think a lot of these guys, I think it's safe to say that they're not Duncan coming out of Wake Forest or whatever, or like, or even as we didn't see LeBron James in college, but we knew that LeBron was going to be LeBron. But, but he's also a once-in-a-lifetime player. We're talking about certain guys that have emerged as some of the best to ever play. In my mind, we've got to lower the expectations. It can't be an automatic that you assume, well, if you're going top five in this draft, you better be a superstar. Uh, there are guys that have long careers, successful careers in this league, make multiple all-star teams, but aren't quite at that epic level. Uh, the example that I was thinking, this, the moment that you started talking about uh, teams that do it the right way, let's take a Kawhi Leonard as an example, the San Antonio Spurs. Kawhi Leonard is going to make the all-star team in the Western Conference eventually. I don't know if it's going to be as soon as next year. I don't know if it's going to take two more years. Uh, eventually, that guy's talent level is too high, and his now background being around the players that he's been around for the last couple of years uh, it's it's overwhelming in his favor. You take the same player coming out of San Diego State and put him on the Sacramento Kings. I don't know what his future would have been. They may have needed too much of him too soon. He may have gotten into some bad habits. He may have uh, fallen into some of the trappings of being in the NBA, being a young guy making a lot of money. 
I just know the checks and balances were in place for him to be successful in San Antonio and Greg Popovich, R.C. Buford, the front office with the Spurs. It's like a machine. They know what they're doing. And if it's not working, they move on. They're willing to accept mistakes in San Antonio. That's the other part of being successful. You can make a mistake, and then you remedy that mistake by either trading a player away, by cutting him, uh, by moving in a different direction. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Sacramento. I think they're the prime example. It seems like they always have these very nice young players that could offer these good starts to their career, but eventually they fizzle out. I think like Jason Thompson, Marcus Thornton, who's actually now playing for uh, the Nets right now, and they just sort of they they sort of they sort of str- struggle once they get paid. I want to shift gears a little. Not well, not shift gears a little bit. I want to ask you about Tyler Ennis because I know you're a Syracuse alum. And unlike their alumni and broadcast media like yourself and Sean McDonough and many others, Bob Cossest, their players haven't done done too well when they go to the professional ranks. I think of John John Wallace, Billy Owens, uh, Derek Coleman, Johnny Flynn. What what are your thoughts on Tyler Ennis? Well, I would take I would take each player individually, and and I'm not sure that I would I would put the whole blanket over Syracuse players in general. Although uh, you're right, it hasn't been this path to to the Hall of Fame. Uh, Ennis is a separate case. Uh, I'm not going to compare him to Sherman Douglas or Jason Hart or other Syracuse point guards, Johnny Flynn that that recently came through the ranks. I'm just going to look at him specifically and tell you that. He's got a high skill level. He's got a knack. He's got a winning mentality. Everything I heard from people that are associated with the program said he worked hard, good kid, likable, is dedicated. Physically, he's going to have a tough time in this league right away. He's going to have a tough time. Look at his body right now, and, and it's, it's going to be a big challenge for him to go to the next level and be able to – handle the wear and tear of playing that position in the NBA. That's not to say that he can't gain some strength. He can't get uh, picked by a team that has an excellent strength and conditioning coach that gets him on a program. His body, he's young, is still going to develop and, and still going to mature. But that point guard position is so difficult because you need to have the respect of your teammates. There has to be a leadership ability innate to you in order uh, to be successful in that position in the NBA. Sean Livingston, uh, now with the Nets, is one of the feel-good stories of the season. He really is. Uh, The way he's played, the way his body has bounced back from that horrific leg injury. In talking to Jason Kidd this year on numerous occasions when I brought up Sean Livingston's name, he has said definitively, best point guard he's ever seen coming out of high school. And we tend to forget that Sean Livingston was not blowing away the competition before the leg injury. It was all about promise. It was all about upside. Uh, You looked at his length. You looked at his explosive ability and thought, wow, at some point this guy could be a big-time player in the NBA. But before the leg injury, he was not a big-time player in the NBA. It's hard to play point guard at, at this level. And for Tyler Ennis, who uh, had a spectacular season for Syracuse and did everything that they could have hoped for and then some, uh, I think it's going to be a very tough transition for him physically. Someone's going to take him in the first round, and they should. 
Uh, he's a guy that, uh, that, that I'd like to see develop on my team. But if you're taking him with the idea that he's going to run your team in his rookie year, I, I think it's, it's asking a lot. Hello, Ian. Uh, this is Andre. I'm going to uh, shift gears a little bit to our Celtics Beat fan question of the day, which comes from Samuel. To get your question asked on future shows, log on to Facebook.com slash Celtics Beat and pitch your question. Samuel wants to know if you think Paul Pierce, a free agent at the end of the year, and Kevin Garnett, currently out with an injury, will be back in Brooklyn next year. Well, it's a great question, Samuel. I think if you asked me that question six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, uh, I might have waffled on it because Pierce at that point was just starting to warm up to the idea of putting on that Nets uniform on a nightly basis. Uh, I think he still was having a tough time leaving Boston. Uh, The emotional return to TD Garden did a lot for Paul to create some closure. I really believe that. And they did just an incredible job uh, honoring him, honoring Kevin Garnett. Uh, There was a lot of anticipation, as we know, for that late January meeting. And it lived up to it. It lived up to the hype. But I think it also allowed Pierce, in particular, to move on. And he has since embraced the idea of being a part of this Brooklyn Nets franchise. He's engaged with the crowd. He's just more at ease. I think he's become himself again. Just being around him and and watching him interact with his teammates and the coaches, uh, he's back to the guy that, that Celtic fans fell in love with for so many years as a member of that team. So uh, to answer your question on the Pierce end, I think he's going to be back. I think he's, he's going to end up signing a two-year deal, and, and they'll pay him. He'll, he'll get his money with the Nets. They understand his role on this team and, and the fact that there is a leadership and an edge that he brings uh, to this franchise. Uh, the Garnett storyline is yet to be written uh, physically uh, this season has been taxing on him, and he's such a proud guy, and I don't think he would ever, ever admit to it publicly because it's it's just not in his DNA. But it's been a challenging season for him, dealing with the back issues, not having his body respond the way that it has in previous years as a member of the Celtics and the Timberwolves. So Whenever this run is over, whatever happens in the postseason, uh, Garnett very well could play a really big role in the Nets' success or their shortcomings in the playoffs. I don't know if he's made his mind up yet, and I think there's going to be a lot of soul-searching on his part. He's not the kind of guy that strikes me that's going to just hold on to get the paycheck. If he can't bring it anymore the way he's accustomed to, and if he doesn't believe he can play at the level that he has come to expect out of himself, uh, I could see KG retiring. That was the case sort of too a couple of years ago when Boston was making that run of the Eastern Conference Finals. Garnett was really dealing with a lot of injuries that year. and He was the best player on that team. I took the heat to the seventh game, but there was a serious question at the end of the year of whether or not he would retire because it seemed that he really, it's not that he had anything left in the tank, but you could just see that he was physically gassed. All right, Ian, I really want to get you out here on this. We're going to cheat, and we're going to do something that's never been done on this show ever because it's only a 60-minute show. We know that you do preseason games for the New York Jets, so in just a very few seconds before we let you go, tell our Boston or slash New England audience a little bit about Darrell Rivas. 
Oh, yeah. How about that? Darrell Revis, really proud guy uh, and wears it on his sleeve. Uh, I, I would say as confident a guy as I've been around at that position in, in my years doing the NFL, uh, which has now been 18 years. Uh, he just, he's got a belief. Uh, he's got that swagger that he brings, and it's served him well. Uh, but with that said, well liked by his teammates. Uh, I think I think Patriot fans are going to love him. I think Bill Belichick is going to love him. He already does, having gone against him for all those years. Uh, to me, that that really was a perfect marriage. Uh, that that was one of the biggest moves during the off season. And as long as he can bounce back physically, he brings the kind of mentality that that the Patriots are looking for. Uh, and as as successful as he's been individually. At the core, he is a team guy. Uh, there, there is a likability factor with him uh, that uh, teammates always gravitated towards when he was a member of the Jets. Can't wait to hear you call games with Dan Fouts on CBS. I think you guys are the best team they got. But uh, Iron Eagle, Yes Network, CBS Sports, and many other outlets as well. Just citizen of the, citizen of the world, really. Thank you so much for joining us on Celtics Beat this Saturday. Guys, anytime. Hopefully uh, this is the first of numerous appearances down the road. Absolutely, Ian. Thank you so much for, for joining us. All right, guys. And, uh, yes, uh, we did cheat a little bit here on Celtics Breed, bringing up some New England Patriots talk on the Celtics show, but I just had to ask Ian for a little insight, you know, just for myself and, of course, for our little New England audience that we have. So I still have to mention something pretty important here. Uh, the contest the guys over at the Patriots Beat podcast are having is still going on. Patriots fans, NFL fans, or autograph collectors in general, you can enter to win a signed 8.5 by 11 photo of recently re-signed New England Patriots wide receiver Julian Edelman. The autograph even comes with a certificate of authenticity. How do you enter? Text CLNS fans to 22828. That's CLNS fans to 22828. That'll get you into the contest where not just one, but three lucky fans will have a chance at coming away with the prize. And even if you aren't lucky enough to come away with one of the autographs, that will still sign you up for our free weekly, so don't worry about it, that's not spam, free weekly newsletter delivered straight to your inbox. So you can keep up with all of our written online content, such as, of course, my new three-part series on the worst members of the Boston Celtics ever that's running this weekend, as well as our great podcasts, such as this one, uh, right, Andre? And, of course, the new Patriots Beat podcast, which airs every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And, of course, even if you miss the shows, you can download any one of all of our great podcasts we have on iTunes and, of course, our dearest friends over at the Stitcher application who have been, in no other words, phenomenal for us. So please, where you go, iTunes, Stitcher, feel free to leave a review and uh, drop us a rating. All right, Andre. A lot, a lot of good stuff there, a lot, a lot of good college basketball talk. Tyler is pretty interesting because I know that um, – He's a guy that could be around with that middle pick with the Celtics. And I know the Celtics have been looking for a backup point guard for many, many years. You think Ian, he's a big Syracuse alum. He'd be saying, oh, yeah, pumping his tires. This kid Ennis, he's going to be something. Now, you know I don't watch much college basketball. I know me and you have actually gone back and forth about college basketball and how you don't watch the college game too much as well. Um, not too not too. F- not too excited about Tyler Ennis's chances in the NBA, so uh, hopefully Danny Ainge is listening to Ian on this interview and won't pick him <laughs> with that first-round draft pick, no? Yeah, I mean, um, one thing we've um, seen with Danny Ainge through the years is that uh, 
he has a plan and he's going to follow that plan. So I don't think we have to worry about um, uh, him being too influenced one way or the other by what we or even I uh, think. But, um, I mean, you had a good point about Syracuse point guards not having the best recent track record in the NBA. That shouldn't be enough in and of itself to disqualify Ennis, but um, (laughs) if the Syracuse alum isn't that high on him, uh, I I must admit I'm a little cooler on the prospect than maybe I was before the interview. I did not like how he mentioned how Sherman Douglas didn't have the best of careers. Are you kidding me, (laughs) Ian? Sherman Douglas was one of my favorite Celtics ever. It made me sick to my stomach when the Celtics traded him for, for Todd Day. Well, actually, I had to watch Todd Day those final two years. As you know, I obviously just wrote that I believe that Todd Day was probably the second worst Celtic in the history of the organization. <laughs> but another thing, too, it was in our Celtics Beat fa- Facebook page, I asked the fans what they wanted to ask Ian for a question. I mentioned how we were going to be talking about college basketball on the show and how Ian does all this great work for CBS Sports and even Westwood Run Radio calling these games and every single question we got was I believe questions regarding the Nets and Pierce and Garnett interesting now that he thinks that Pierce is going to be back remember a few it was pretty much just it seemed like yesterday that that Pierce was going to be gone and there was even talk that he might come back to the Celtics now that the Nets have been on this run and they it seems like they've been winning 80% of the games ever since Joe Johnson hit that game winner against Oklahoma City, I believe, day mm-hmm. after New Year's Day. Now it seems like Pierce is going to be back, and here's a play-by-play announcer with the Nets saying he's going to come back with a two-year deal. What do you think of that? I think it's interesting. I think he had an excellent point. He was talking about Garnett at the time, but I think it might reflect on Pierce as well. I think this postseason is really going to help sway them one way or the other as to their future um, with the Nets. Because, you know, as as Ian was pointing out, Pierce is seeing that he can have a home there. Um, And and if there is a lot of success or if if they're able to to put together a bit of a postseason run, and especially if KG um, does decide to come back and and stays in, in Brooklyn, I could see Pierce, you know, saying, you know what, this is where I am. This is, you know, this is, this is, this is how I'm going to go out over these next couple of years. I could see that. But if, you know, and you know, obviously I don't want to see this because, you know, I'm a big Garnett fan. If KG decides that this is it and he hangs them up and the, the Nets flame out in the postseason and, you know, things just don't end on a positive uptick, Pierce is a free agent and, you know, there's no place like home. So, um, I, I guess at this moment, if I had to bet, I would say probably Pierce is not in green next year. But, um, you know, I, I don't think it's a, a done deal one way or the other. I think they're a package deal. I think if Garnett comes back next year, and you'd have to think that next year would be Garnett's last year no matter what. It's either this year or next year. If Garnett has one more year left, he's not going to look for another contract. I think Pierce would re-up with Brooklyn. If Garnett retires... I could see him coming back to Boston or the Clippers. I don't think Pierce is going to be chasing rings down in Miami or whatnot Mm -hmm. or or even looking to play for a third or fourth team to finish out his career like Eric Dickerson finished out his career in the NFL when it seemed like he played for like half the league. (laughs) Um, But, you know, maybe he goes and plays with Doc Rivers. I think it's either Pierce coming to Boston, maybe to go play with the Clippers if Garnett doesn't come back to Brooklyn. 
But if Garnett does, I think Pierce re-ups as well. And as you said, I think it entirely has to do with how far the Nets go in the playoffs this year, obviously, and how close they get. If they flame out, I don't think they're going to lose in the first round no matter who they play. It looks like either Chicago or even if they slip down and play Toronto, they won't lose any of those series. But if they, say, lose to Indiana or Miami in five games in the second round or even a sweep, then I think I can see Garnett hanging it up knowing that he's probably not going to win a championship. But if they also make a deep run in the playoffs, which I think is possible, especially with the way Indiana's playing right now, and and they get appropriately seeded, maybe fall that sixth seed, knock off Toronto in that 3-6 matchup, and then upset the Indiana, I think that's possible. And then give Miami another run for their money, and we all know Pierce and Garnett love getting up for the Miami. Oh, yeah. We all remember that. Everybody thought a few years ago the Celtics were going to get smoked. And as it turned out, they were one win away on their home court from from winning that series and advancing to the finals. If that team makes a run, gets the Eastern Conference Finals, takes Miami to six, and God forbid, seven games, we believe that's possible, talking about that with the Nets, I could see Garnett coming back. I'd put the odds to it, Garnett coming back at about 60-40 no matter what anyways because, hey, he's he's owed $12 million next year. But at the same time, if if the Nets flame out, we'll see. There's 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 still a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, you know me. I'm a big Garnett fan, oh, but I'm I also <laughs> I'm also a big NBA nerd. You know, I, I'm 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 all about the numbers. I'm all about you know really trying to see how the pieces put together. And I mean, you know, I I'm willing to to put it out there. If Kevin Garnett's healthy in the NBA playoffs. Um, I think they have a good chance to to not take Miami to seven to actually beat them. Um, but if he's still playing 20 minutes a game at most or, or missing time with, with back spasms, then, yeah, I don't think Brooklyn has much chance. But um, th- this team was put together for the postseason, and they've shown in the second half of the season that, you know, th- they have the ability to be the team that maybe – people expected them to be. So um, I think this postseason could be really interesting. It is going to be a very interesting postseason. I remember, I'm not sure if it was you talking to Quinn Buckner. I was Rich Conte, and we were all talking about the inevitable Indiana-Miami matchup. Now the East Conference playoffs. Brooklyn is the real wild card in the East. I think this first round is just going to be a joke, and we all know how long these first-round games go. It's like two and a half weeks long. If we could just skip the first round, just get to the second, you got Brooklyn as sort of the joker in the deck. They're the wild card. Indiana, mm-hmm. Miami. Indiana's really, really just slipped off. I know they've they've sort of taken care of business over these last few days, but they're really they seem lethargic. Miami's coming along, but the East is definitely going to be a little interesting. A lot of people thought Miami thought was just going to race to the Eastern Conference last year after having that long winning streak, but then they sort of. They sort of sputtered a little bit, and then they obviously had Indiana take them to seven games. And then, of course, the Western Conference is going to be a complete barn burner. Just skip the first two and a half weeks of the postseason. If there's a way we can just do that, where we can just sort of hit a, a fast-forward button in our lives and then sort of just get to the to the middle of May, you're right. Western Conference, Eastern Conference, I'm actually really looking forward to the NBA playoffs this year. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, in the Western Conference, even the first round is going to be ridiculous. I mean, the the eighth seed in the West might win 50 games, you know. So you're looking at what would be second round, maybe even conference final type matchups in the East um, that you might see in the first round in the West. So, 
you know, I, I don't expect the first round to be too boring. I, I'm, I'm in a hurry to get to the good stuff, but um, I think there's still some good matchups uh, out there. And I'm not so convinced that Indiana is dead. You know, I, I think that the NBA season is incredibly long and the Pacers have never been, this iteration of the Pacers has never been on top the way they have been. And, and that takes its own amount of stamina. So I, I really think that, you know, right now they're, they're just trying to get to the finish line and, and then we'll see what they're made of once the playoffs start. But, um, yeah, I mean, this Heat team, even though they've been to the finals three years in a row and have won two championships in a row, they don't play easy series against good teams. You know, they're, they're grind, six, seven-game matchups. So, um, you know, I, I don't think the Heat's going to be racing through anything. I think, uh, I think this will be an interesting playoffs. Well, you're right about the Western Conference. Sure, it's going to be very competitive and a little unpredictable. But at the same time, how many of those teams really have a chance to win the championship? I think you're looking at the Clippers as, as sort of the Brooklyn out there as sort of the wild card. But then you have the Spurs, and it's interesting. I talked with Brent Barry, who's a big Spurs backer. As, as he played for them and won a couple of championships with them, he seemed a little skeptical of the Spurs as, as well as they've been playing because they, he seems to just see me missing a little something. But how, how many of those teams out West can win the championship? I think you're looking at the Clippers as a wild card, the Spurs, obviously, and then Oklahoma City. I think as interesting as the West may be and as interesting as these teams, especially at the bottom, as these teams like Dallas and, and Phoenix and Memphis scrap out for that eighth seed, they're not really going to be a factor at the end of the day anyways. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd agree with you that, that you know, the lower-ranked teams in the West, I'd be shocked if they actually came through. I think the only difference is I would put Houston if, you know, if Howard and Harden are both healthy. I would put them on the list of teams that could come out of the West. Um, I've, I've used the analogy of, of kind of rock, paper, scissors. And I think Houston is one of those teams that, that yeah, maybe San Antonio might beat Oklahoma City and maybe Oklahoma City would beat the Clippers and maybe Houston would beat the, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Maybe Houston beat San Antonio. I, I think it, it's going to be a, a question of matchups once the, the playoffs actually begin out West. But um, I, I think Houston's kind of earned the right to, to, to be mentioned at least in that category. I think Houston can be a factor in the playoffs. There's no question about that. But in terms of them winning a championship, they're one player away, almost assuredly. That they're not, they're not a contender, in my opinion. Yeah, it should be interesting. I, mean, I can definitely, I can respect that opinion. I would, I think, I would be surprised if they actually won the championship. But I could see them coming out of the West, you know. Um, and as I look through these teams, I think you know my my standards of, of contender might be a little bit more liberal than yours. Um, because out of the East, I, I have trouble imagining Indiana winning a championship, but I could see Indiana, Miami, or Brooklyn, you know, it, it representing the East in the finals. So I would say that there are seven teams across the conferences that I could see as finalists and, um, you know, without being stunned. And um, I would have Houston on that list. All right, Andre, well, that was some great NBA talk. Guess what? Five more minutes, my maiden voyage as, as the lead host. Let's get ready for Around the NBA in five. Let's do it. Well, we're going to start out with a little college basketball. Some scouts think that Jabari Parker is going to stay in Duke. What would that do for the draft? Well, it would take a big name out the draft, and I'm not really sure that I buy it just because if you're going to be a top three pick in the NBA draft, 
it, it, it behooves you to come out. So um, I think staying a year might help him be a better player, but I expect to hear his name announced uh, in June. Yeah, I would agree with you there. At the end of the day, there's just still a ton of money left for him on the table. We'll see if he turns down the big bucks. But hey, he did seem very disappointed after he lost that game in the first round of the tournament with Duke. That's true. Well, reports are that the Lakers are planning to retain Mike D'Antoni in 2015. You buying that? Somewhat. Somewhat. I think it's a money issue. They, this would be If they fired D'Antoni, that'd be their fourth coach in two years. Uh, that's Oakland Raider-esque, four coaches in two years. They paid pretty big money for D'Antoni. They played pretty decent money for Mike Brown, of all people. They may want to just suck it up with D'Antoni for one more year. However, if there's a free agent out there or a guy like a Kevin Love they can get in a trade who says that he doesn't want to play for D'Antoni, <laughs> or if Kobe really pushes the issue, as Sean Devaney reported earlier in the month at Sporting News, they could change their mind, but it, it could be a money issue. It's, it's still up in the air for sure. Yeah, I can see that, but just the potential for ugliness if they keep him and things don't go well make that a really risky move. Yeah, it'd be interesting who would they possibly hire. I'm not sure there's really many big names out there. Maybe Tom Thibodeau as his, as he gets closer to the end of his contract, but I don't think that's that's in the foreseeable future. All right, but sticking with the Lakers here, executives say that they won't shy away from drafting Dante Exum despite him being pretty obvious that he wants to be a Laker. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be interesting history repeating itself like that. You know, uh, once upon a time, uh, a young draftee named Kobe Bryant made it really clear that, uh, that he wanted to be a Laker. And um, he got his wish and got traded, you know, on draft night. Um, I'm not sure that uh, Mr. Exum is, is going to be that caliber of player. But, um, you know, in this day and age with the rookie uh, salary scale in place, Teams can afford to, you know, just say, look, we're, we're not going to let the Lakers just get a player just because he wants to go there. We're going to do what's best for our team, and, um, and I don't blame them. Yeah, not only that, it's highly unlikely, too, that Exum leaves after his rookie deal with all the, the new rules in place that make it pretty tough for rookies to turn down that first maximum extension. You look at Kevin Love back with the Timberwolves a few years ago. He was unhappy, but... He really didn't want to wait it out till he got to be an unrestricted free agent. And that's just putting too much risk on the table. Generally, when you draft a player, you've got a player in your control for at least five or six years. And five or six years to, to groom a player like Exum or, or anyone else for that matter, It's I don't think that the risk is there. I dare him to just to demand a trade to L.A. right off the bat or say in a few years or whatever it is, I'm just going to wait this out and become a Laker. Yeah, I do not think that would uh, get his career off to the kind of start that, um, that that he would need to get off to to have a good NBA career. Speaking of uh, <laughs> pathways to, to greatness, the Detroit Pistons are planning to quote-unquote experiment with young players the rest of the season. Is that just a code word for tanking? That is an exact, blatant code, code word for tanking. We know exactly what they're doing. Obviously, they have a draft pick that they'd have to send to Charlotte Bobcats because of the trade with Ben Gordon a few years ago. I believe it's top eight, top seven, somewhere around there, right on the cusp. It's pretty much a carbon copy of the Golden State Warriors a few years ago, where I think they had to send a pick to Utah if it, if it fell out of the top seven. 
Same mm -hmm. thing here with Detroit. They're going to do everything they can to lose games to make sure they get to keep this first-round draft choice. Yeah, I remember when Minnesota had that same situation with the top 10 protected draft pick. And uh, they, they had uh, Mark, Mark Madsen shooting three-pointers to make sure that they lost. So, um, yeah, teams will go very far. All right, Andre, we're going to have to make this real quick. Knicks or Hawks, who you got for that eighth seed? Sure looks like the Knicks. Um, they've got the momentum ever since they got Phil, and um, the Hawks have players saying in articles that they don't care if they make the playoffs or not, so that seems to speak for itself. Yeah, it seems like outside of maybe Philadelphia, I think Atlanta's been, what, the worst team in, in the entire NBA since the All-Star break? I can't remember the last time mm. they've won more than two games in a row. Well, that is going to do it for, once again, another edition of Around the NBA in five and Andre, well, my virgin go-around is complete. It was great doing the show with you, of all people. I greatly respect your opinion. I love reading your columns over at the Hoops Lab at Rotowire. Well, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be here. And, um, you know, it was a pleasure to, to be on here with you, who, um, as I recall, you were the one that, that brought me into the fold. So I, I always appreciate you for that. Hey, I went from producer of the show to throwing in as a part-time host and now all of a sudden it feels like i'm on the show every single week i mean come on enough's enough <laughs> but yeah, a busy well, man's work is never done okay well it is done the show is done that's going to do it for this week's edition of celtics beat music as always for celtics beat was provided by carlos andres mesa Ostra vex and steph legrato be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat. And you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. I'd like to thank our guest, Ian Eagle, one of my favorite play-by-play -play announcers going in sports right now. Ian's the voice of the Brooklyn Nets for the Yes Network, as well as all the great work he does for CBS Sports with college basketball, football, the NFL, everything. Can't wait for the NFL season to hear Ian along with Dan Fouts. But... For myself, the executive producer of the show, and for you, Andre Snellings, my co-host, see you next Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 Pacific, for another edition of Celtics Beat, heard exclusively on CLNS Radio.